Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Psychology. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology. First class honours, a degree I've almost entirely forgotten. But it gives a tiny bit of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the comedian, presenter and very lovely man, Matt Richardson. Matt, hello. Hi there, how are you doing? Good. First class honours, by the way. Oh, thank you. Very, very impressive. <laughs> thank you. Most people have two ones, don't they? <laughs> Indeed. That's why I'm throwing it in. You should throw it in all the time in every conversation. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you, Nathan Cassidy, first class honours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't even need to say the degree. Just go, oh, you've got a first class honours, lovely. <laughs> There's a tiny bit of me that thinks, I mean, I'm saying it kind of like, <laughs> almost a joke, but also no, no, do know I got a first class honours, as in, I didn't just get a third and spend all my time doing comedy, which I did, but I got a first as well. But. <laughs> the fact you balance both, but also like, like it is something to be proud of, and then you do talk it down afterwards by being like, oh, I forgot most of the degree. Like, be proud of it, mate. <laughs> okay. A degree I remember. Yeah, there I'm we go. That's, there we go. That's what we want to hear. Yeah. As usual, in psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the interview. Matt is um, reclining, lying down, almost completely lying down on his uh, beautiful sofa in his lovely uh, house here in London. How yeah. are you feeling today, Matt? Are you good? Yeah, I'm feeling good. I, f- I feel like this is like a proper psychology session. The fact mm. that I am lying down and you're sort of sat in an armchair mm. with a notepad and <laughs> I'm probably going to reveal some really dark things from my childhood now. <laughs> That's the aim. Have you ever done any kind of sessions like this? Have you ever I've, done anything like this? Yeah, I've done CBT. I've done hypnotherapy before. Um, I've done it all, mate. Oh, wow. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to get those demons out, haven't you, somehow? Yeah. When did you do that, CBT? And... CBT, I've not done for a long time. I did mm. CBT for about a year, uh, maybe like nine years ago. Mm. And then um, hypnotherapy, I've done a, a couple of times over the years for various things. Yeah. Do you mind going into that in terms of, you know, the... No, not at all. Um... Um, so it, it's all for obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. Uh, so the CBT is obviously like coping mechanisms and stuff. Mm. And then I thought I'd try hypnotherapy for it as well, which um, worked. Quite mm. well, like, you know, I think it's one of those ones that people are quite sceptical of. Mm. And it's really weird, like, to do. Like, I find it really unusual because you're there, but you're not. And it's very strange. Mm. But um, I, I quite enjoyed it, the hypnotherapy. 
I've I think, heard great things about it. It's very powerful. Yeah, and, and, and the the woman I went to see um, uh, last time was like, you know, if you ever want to like unlock your creativity or something like that, we can go into that as well. And I was like, well, I've still got about 15 minutes of an Edinburgh show to write. If I get... <laughs> It's cheaper than getting a writer in, getting a hypnotherapist. <laughs> so maybe I'll just go and see her and see if I can unlock that last bit of creativity rather than paying £600 to someone like Henry Packer for the day. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do they explain what they're doing? Do you, under, do you have an understanding? Because I've, you know, I've, I've been in those sessions. I've seen hypnotists work in you know, entertainment fields and I'm still fascinated with it. You know, I'm always fascinated by it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like, it's sort of like a mindfulness. When you're going into it, I guess it's like a breathing mindfulness thing and they get you to sort of focus on certain things in the room and sounds and all that. But the actual moment it happens, because I I lie there going, this isn't going to work. And even once you're in it, you're going, this, I'm not hypnotised. (laughs) And then you, but you absolutely are. And like, you sort of, yeah, it's this weird kind of like, that kind of mid-level between sleep and awake where you're sort of aware of everything, but you're not really. Mm. And it, you sit there for ages and it feels like you've been uh, like there for five minutes. And she's like, no, we did an hour and a half then. And look at you watch, <laughs> you go, oh, we really did. This is very strange. Yeah. And I don't, and I've got, you know, the sessions, they record the session and give it to you. And every time you listen to it, they go, you need to listen to it every day for a week. Mm. And you go, oh, it'd be really interesting to see what she said. But the problem is, because you follow the instructions at the beginning, the exact same thing happens. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't really know what she's unlocked, because every time I listen to it, it works. (laughs) Let's go to stand-up comedy. So you started comedy pretty early at 18. Obviously, kids are starting now at six, but uh, you started around... Yeah, yeah, Avalon uh, take them on at seven now. (laughs) Yeah, so you started around... um, 18. Can we talk about your first gig for a second? Because people yes. have been saying a few things uh, to me recently about bravery in comedy. And I always look back at my first gig as the time. Uh, the only time I can consider myself actually brave is the wrong word. But So where and when was your first gig? Can so my first remember? gig was at university. Um, uh, I was there a couple of months, didn't really like it. saw there was a comedy night and at the bottom of it was like, if you want to give it a go, email this. Mm. And I'd always really wanted to do it. Yep. So I emailed them and um, they put me on two weeks later. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I like I look back now and I can't believe I had the the sort of the balls and the brazenness to just go, oh yeah, can I come and do that, please? Yeah. And so you and say you've been thinking it. about it for a while and yeah, like I'd loved stand up as a teenager and I'd yeah. always it, it'd been my like dream job, you know, mm. like when you watch telly and you watch people doing things. I didn't want to be a footballer or anything. Yeah. Always wanted to do stand up, and I think yeah, like you say, that first gig is actually probably the only moment of bravery because it is <laughs> it is jumping off the cliff isn't it yeah and um and it went it went well i mean mm. in my head there was like 200 people there but actually like i think there was about 15 or 30 <laughs> like there's barely anyone there it was in like the university su and yeah. most of the material i did was about the university so i went to oxford brooks it was taking the mick out of all of that and so it worked really well yeah. and then my second gig which wasn't in the university it didn't go well because <laughs> no one really understood what i was talking about <laughs> Yeah. Can you remember how you felt um, before that first gig? Because as you say, that is the one that you need balls for. I remember I did, I did, I did mine ludicrously at Banana Cabaret in Ballam. 
Did which, you? <laughs> which is kind of a big club to do your first gig. It was a full room. They still don't book me. Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> like they book people on their first gigs, man. I mean, mate. I mean, right. Experience. So, like, uh, first class honours. The fact you can fall asleep <laughs> in a minute and you did your first gig at Banana Cabaret. Like, I, I've, this has not been good for our connection uh, <laughs> as this people was... that like each other. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's a really big room to play. Yeah. So how were you, how were you feeling? Because I remember. Um, you know, it's not about me, but I have a I have a strange story about my. I, I used to wear this bright orange suit. Uh, this Oswald Boateng suit that yeah. I bought. So I put it all on, and the guy said to me, he said, well, you can close a half because you clearly know what you're doing. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I've just spent £100 on a Boateng suit. So not only was I doing it at Banana Cabaret, I was headlining a section, and I was terrible, obviously. How long did um, you do? Like five minutes or like yeah, a Yeah, five set? minutes to silence. Oh, and yeah. I got one laugh by saying, this is going well. Um, <laughs> anyway... That's Back always a classic you. laugh to get, isn't it? My, oh, indeed, my first yeah. one went really well, actually. Yeah. And um, well, uh, the people there, it. but also like I took a load of friends and stuff, which I, okay. looking back now is stupid mm. because if it had gone really badly, you've got to then be friends with them still. Yeah. Like I remember um, a couple, maybe a year after I'd started, I'd put on a charity gig for someone in my hometown and mm. it was in this massive hall and not many people came. Mm. And those people to this day are still like, Oh, so you, have you actually gotten good at stand-up? I'm like, well, it's been 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yes, I have. But um, uh, they, um, they, yeah, it's, it's just that horrible feeling. Like, I don't know why I took so many of my friends. And, and I was buzzing before because I took four Pro Plus as well, <laughs> which is like basically like taking speed. <laughs> yeah, does it, I don't think anything compares to that, to that first gig, really, in terms no. of the, 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 the terror in your mind as you look out and think, oh, God. Absolutely not. But also, I don't think anything compares to the buzz after the first gig either. Yeah. Even if it goes badly for people. Like, mm. I know a couple of comics who, um, you know, used to be heroin addicts and talk about it on stage. Mm. And they say it's like the first time you do heroin, it's never quite the same again. <laughs> and you're always chasing the buzz of that first time. And I agree with that with stand-up as well. I think I've never felt as sort of high as my first gig and every gig afterward has never quite been like that. And now, once it becomes work a day, like I come off stage and I don't feel anything. Mm. You know, it's just, I, you know, I do comedy to maintain now. Whereas, yeah. yeah, that first gig, I didn't sleep, I don't think, at all the night. Well, that was probably the pro, pro plus as well. But mm. um, I didn't sleep all night. I was lying in bed just going, this is it. This is the beginning of my life. Yeah. That's interesting that you say you do it to maintain. That's exactly how I... Uh, feel now in terms of maintaining a balance if I don't do it then I get quite low is that is so that's the same with you if you don't do it you're feeling low and you don't get many highs or um I don't I don't not I don't feel low if I don't do it right but I feel like I get a bit agitated and I feel like I start to it it creeps out in my real life right so um uh, if I don't do stand up for a while I, I become like it's like basically I have to do that otherwise I like perform to my friends at the pub <laughs> and they get a bit annoyed and I think st and I used to be very kind of full on I mean I'm quite a full on person anyway but yeah. like stand up's mellowed me because it's given me an outlet for all my desperate attention seeking <laughs> my girlfriend would disagree and say that I'm constantly attention seeking but I think it's made me more mellow yeah so when I don't do it for a couple of months I'll I'll be like that again Nice. So you still get you still get the highs, do you? You still yeah, definitely. Especially like I think um, when you get to go and do quite big gigs and things like that, and you're mm. doing say, um, you know, like I did a gig recently, and it was at this 
the, the person who booked it booked this lovely gig at a really nice theatre with about, you know, two and a half thousand people in. Mm. And you kind of get there and you go, oh, wow, okay, this will be fun. And I imagine, like, I'm not used to those kind of rooms. I don't play them very often. Um, so I still get a real buzz from doing that. Yeah. Um, or if a gig goes partic- like particularly well, um, then I'll get a buzz. But if you go on, you do a good job. I think that now, for me, is the minimum I expect that I go on and I do a really good job. Yeah. So that doesn't give me a high. That just gives me sort of a job satisfaction feeling. Yeah. Great. So a year or so after your first gig, you won a, and were nominated for a variety of New Act Awards. Yep, all the regional ones. 2010. Leicester Comedy Festival, best new show. That was the, uh, that's a big one. Yeah. And then in, uh, was it that year, some TV people saw you in Edinburgh um, and uh, you auditioned for The Extra Factor? Yeah, it? so it was that. So Edinburgh 2012, yeah. I went up with Angela Barnes. Um, yeah. Whatever happened to her? Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, oh, I tell you, she's see her on Live at the Apollo all the time. Um, uh, we did a 200, the uh, espionage, uh, Laughing Horse espionage. Yeah. And um, the head of ITV2 came to see the show. And then they, uh, six, about six months later, asked me to come in for a meeting oh. about The Extra Factor. And I was like, okay, that's strange. I don't know why they want to speak to me about it. And I went in for this meeting and I basically told them everything I thought was wrong with their show because I didn't think I had anything to lose <laughs> because I'd never done any television or anything like that. I just saw it as like, oh, this would be good practice to go in if I ever do any of these meetings in the future. What was wrong with their show? Um, I said it was. We only have 40 minutes. Oh, I said it was. Yeah, exactly. Well, I said at the time, I was like, it's too much about Ollie and Caroline flirting. It's not enough about the contestants. It's not funny enough and it should be funny. And all this, and they went, oh, okay, cool. we like people your were wondering what happened to Ollie Mers and why he left Extra Factor. Now we know it's, uh... um, it was no, it was he, he chose to leave. They were looking for <laughs> ah, his replacement, okay. and I was just like, this is this is what you need to do. Whereas I think everyone else that went in was going, oh, I'm going to be exactly like Ollie was. Whereas mm. I went, oh, I hate that and I can't stand it. Mm. I don't want to be like that. And they went, all right, cool. Do you want to do the job then? I went, yeah, all right. <laughs> and then I did it to um, um, well, I, I, a critical mauling. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Well, it went, it went, it went all right, but it, you know, some people really didn't like it. Some people did, which was nice. I, I was an acquired taste. Uh, okay. They told me when they didn't renew my contract. Okay. Well, I mean, if you don't mind expanding on that a little bit, because I have to come from this from a perspective. But when you say you, you knew what was wrong with Extra Factor, that just surprises me that you were watching Extra Factor. But it only it surprises me. I just don't watch much TV, so I watch Bullseye, <laughs> repeats of Bullseye really? from the 80s. Yeah, See, I get in after a gig and I watch repeats of Bullseye. I don't watch anything else. So if you're not on Bullseye, you're not famous as far as I'm concerned. That's fair enough. Um, I've got some horrible news for you about Jim Bowen. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell me you'll pull through. <laughs> I gigged with him once. He's really nice. He was really yeah. nice, actually. He was sort of on the circuit a little bit still, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, um, man- he was man- you know, I knew his manager and stuff, yeah. Um, um, but... Uh, I do watch a lot of telly and I quite mm. like that kind of telly. So yeah. X Factor, I'd never watched that much before I did it, but I love and to this day still watch religiously um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I love that show. And yeah. I watch um, Britain's Got Talent a bit. What's wrong with that show? Maybe um, um, well, Ant and Matt would be Well, better. the problem now is that um, with that show is that like Ant's sober, so it's much <laughs> less risky to watch it live. Um, can we talk about um, Extra Factor just for a sec? Yeah, so cool. that's a, I mean, that's obviously a huge gig. You've yeah. Just, you've done, you know, a few gigs. You've done a few years in comedy. Yeah. And you've got this, uh, you've got this huge gig. 
how I mean, how are you feeling there uh, mentally in terms of maybe I don't know just before you go on? It's it's a live show, isn't it? Your first yeah. live show, or um, maybe go. Let's go back to meeting. I presume you met Simon Cowell and these kind of guys. And, no, I didn't no. meet Simon Cowell. Okay. My year was a, a was a fallow Cowell year. It was. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. uh, I had a Gary Barlow year, oh, um, nice. which was great actually because he was brilliant. <laughs> um, but the first, so the first thing that happened was is I met Caroline, and then we flew to Glasgow for the first set of auditions, and we flew up together, Caroline and I, and like kind of some of the execs, and then they kept me separate from the judges for the first night. They all went out for dinner because they wanted me to meet them on camera for the first time. Yeah. And, um, and then, so hold me back from them for, the, for a night. We're all in the same hotel, but I'm kind of like kept away. And then um, they take me to meet them on camera for the first time. And it was really weird. It was in this very posh hotel in Glasgow in this lobby. And um, I went up to them and I went, hey, I'm Matt. And there's like all these cameras filming. This is the first piece of television I've ever done. <laughs> and um, the first thing that happened is Sharon Osbourne came up to me and she went, Matt, tell me, do you like to lick out girls? <laughs> and that was her first question. I was like, well, yes. And she went, your hesitation makes me think that you don't. And um, that, was the, that was my first um, kind of like thrown to the sharks moment <laughs> of television. And was everything that, was that shown on TV? No, it wasn't shown on television. Oh, okay. Of course not. It's a family show. Okay. But I don't was, watch TV. I don't know what I it's think, on. I think that was sort of her way of going, <laughs> this is all just a bit of a laugh and you can muck about. Yeah. Um, and, and it was then. It was just six months of just pissing about and kind of um, making it up as we went along. And yeah. I, there were brilliant producers on it who knew that I'd never done TV. And Caroline was amazing at kind of going, this is how it works and mm. this is how things work with the two of us and how we do things. And I sort of just learned on that job. And it was... It was a really good fun one because we did kind of like loads of pre-recorded stuff. It was tons yeah. of interviews and like, and then like 20 or 10 weeks of live shows, two yeah. shows a week. So how about that first live show in terms of just before you go on? I mean, oh, absolutely it's horrifying. It's a huge audience. Huge audience. What, are you, do, what are you doing beforehand? Is it any uh, any similarity to a stand-up gig in terms of how you're feeling or is it bigger? Or it, it, It's probably the same as going to do your first gig. It's that feeling, that kind mm. of like... There's a tiny voice in your head, and I still get it sometimes doing stand-up, of going, and it's this, this little voice that just goes, why are you putting us through this? <laughs> like, why can't you just go and do something? Like, we, we shouldn't be doing this. Like, this is against everything that feels right. Mm. And it's that kind of feeling. And then those doors open on that x Factor stage, and you just got to do it. You just can't, it's, it's live, which mm. is the beauty of it with, like, stand-up. Mm. Like, you just, you just have to do it. You've got no choice. It's mm. too late. So um, that kind of helps, I guess. And do the nerves go straight away when you're walking through those doors, or do you? Yeah, and then you kind of sort of like it's like a gig, you know. Once you get with a gig, it's like once you get that first laugh, yeah, you go, okay, this is going to be fine, and then you sort of get into the groove of it. And once you've got that first kind of link out the way, or that first bit to camera, yeah, you go, all right, this is going to be fine. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, and that once you've done one bit of it, you re remember that you can do it, and it's yeah. all right. Yeah. And then the rest of it just kind of goes in a blur. And you don't really think about it because you're in the moment of it. Yeah. And then afterwards you go, okay, what was good and bad about that? Yeah. Did you get incredible highs after that though? Um, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Like the, li mm. the live TV, even now doing live TV, I really enjoy live telly. Yeah. Um, and you still get a high. And I like that like lots of things go wrong. And especially when you're presenting it, it's absolute chaos. So like people, it, like there's loads of people talking to you in your earpiece and like there's loads of things happening like behind the cameras. Like, and you have to act all serene and like everything's absolutely fine, even though like things could be really falling apart quite badly. Yeah. And I really like that about it is that it's got that danger and that chaos to it. Yeah.
Cool. So I've, I had I did watch a couple of clips of you on the uh, on the Extra Factor as research for this. Oh yeah. And you seem very natural. You seem great. I'm oh, amazed thanks. you got any kind of critical mauling. I mean, was that? Did you get a mauling for it? Yeah, because I replaced Ollie Murs, and everyone right. loved. And so Ollie Murs fans hated me, and because he's part of that X Factor family. Yeah. Um, that was quite big, and also him and Caroline, their whole thing was when they did it for like two or three years before me. Mm. They had a will they won't they. Yeah. And then I came in, and there was none of that nonsense yeah. um, uh, with us so um, it basically people were really angry that I'd kind of come in and ruined that okay. even though he'd quit rather than I'd um, got the job and the thing that he was doing as well is he was kind of getting like talking about the show as if I'd kind of usurped him <laughs> online which sort of rather than oh, going, really? everyone I quit the job because I was too busy trying to be a pop star um, just let the dude get on with it he would like comment being like oh I wish I was there I feel so jealous and all this <laughs> which then sort of just spurned more people to not like me yeah so the, so, so the critical mauling was from the fans the, yeah the, it was from the, his the, fans kind of yeah. getting involved okay. and, and then there was lots of people who thought like, oh actually this is quite funny it's really nice and loads of comedians that I'd never met before so like Sarah Millican got in touch with me and was like, I really like you on this. I've never heard of you before, but oh. I think you're really good. And like, that was lovely. Like people that you really respect kind of getting in touch. Yeah. So presumably this was on Twitter and things like this. Twitter and Facebook of... and social media, yeah. which I'd have loved to have done stuff before social media. And I just so don't have you... it on. I don't, have, I don't really use it anymore. So did they, what, for that reason or? Yeah, pretty much for that reason. Because then yeah. a few years later I did stuff on Big Brother's Bit on the Side mm. and that audience did hate me. They really hated me. Um, but the booker really liked me, so I used to do it all the time. I, mean, I just right. needed the money at the time, like like needed to do it like twice a week. Yeah. Um, and they hated me so much that like um, I've only found this out in the last two weeks. My girlfriend, who I'm still with now, would go through and report really abusive comments so that I wouldn't see them before I before I checked um, to sort of protect me because it used to bother me so much. Oh, and goodness. now I've kind of just grown to a point where like my I, I did. Um, Love Island after Sun on Sunday mm. and my mum called me and she went oh god yeah people are really going for you and I was like well I've not seen any of it so I'm having quite a nice evening Goodness. so I've just finally gone I just won't look it's easier did you used to look did you used to look yeah, I used at to all look, of them? I used to look at it all every single comment yeah oh goodness yeah it was pretty bad how many how many comments after a show sometimes X Factor, um, X Factor sometimes they'd be like it's like a, a thousand or more what and you kind of go through and like, you oh know, they'd be God. half and half because the problem is as well is it's people don't get in touch if they go, well, that was all right. Mm. They either get in touch if they hate it or if they love it. So you're not really getting a fair reading of anything because like, I'll sit and watch things and go, oh, I enjoyed that. But I don't ever get in touch with anyone to go, I really <laughs> yeah. think this is brilliant. And so you're only getting the two extremes. You're of not course. getting any of the grey area in between. It's like a hotel review, isn't it? Yeah. So, no one gives it three stars. Um, Absolutely. Like, in, you know, it's like in Edinburgh, like, reviewers don't want to write a three-star review, really. Yeah. They either want to maul you or praise you. Yeah. So, I mean, God, I don't want to take you back there, but I'm going to just briefly... What, I mean, what kind of stuff was the harshest stuff that you were reading there? Um, so, I guess the worst thing... And I was like, oh, I was 22 at the time, so I was quite young. I was still living yeah. at home. And, like... Um, people saying that, like, um, uh, they were... Pro there was one that person who said they were pro-life, but the only abortion they wished they'd... Uh, uh, they oh, they wished for was that my mother had had one with me. Oh, God. Um, or someone once got in touch, they really reeled me in. They went, excuse me, mate, how tall are you? <laughs> and I went, oh, I'm about six foot tall. And they went, that's about as much rope as you need to buy to go and fucking hang yourself then. And you're like, oh, my God. cool. I mean, all I'm doing is interviewing pop stars 
Um, why are you so angry about this? So, so, so why, after the first couple of comments, why are you reading all the thousand of them? Well, because then, once you read bad ones, you're then looking for good ones. Right. To kind of go, all right, God, that's really nasty, so let me see if I can find something that will make me feel better. Yeah. But you'll know this um, from, like, you know, Edinburgh Reviews or stand-up gigs. Like, mm. one bad one is the same as a million good ones. Yeah. Like, you could have... So many people come up to you after a gig and go, oh, that was amazing. I loved that. Oh. But there, if one person in the audience sits there and is clearly hating it, that's the only thing you're going to think about for the rest yeah. of the evening. And I think it was the same with that. And it, you end up just seeing more bad ones, which means you're looking for more good ones. Yeah. And it's a vicious cycle, I think. And are you thinking about those comments for the week between recordings? And are you thinking about um, them before you go on? Is it affecting your performance, those? Uh, I don't think I don't think it affected my performance because I've always been a bit defiant, I think, going, right, I'm going to prove people wrong. Mm. But, um, and, you know, and it was going well enough. And, like, you know, people, people in real life that come, would come up to you and go, oh, you're, I really like you. Mm. That would mean much more than what people are saying online. Yeah. And like I said, these I don't bother looking at it these days, and it, it, you know, like, and I, you know, you st- and I was still getting booked, and as I was doing the show, I was getting booked onto other things. Mm. So I was going, so I must be good because people are booking me. Yeah, and I sort of trust their opinions more than the people that are sat at home. Yeah, well, great. You mentioned kind of CBT and OCD. Was that kind of the time you were doing any of this kind of? Um, uh, no, that was it. Was earlier than that. Oh, right. that all okay. that had happened, and okay. at that point, I wasn't on. I wasn't even taking medication for it or anything. At that point, it was all kind of because I was so busy. I didn't have, like my problem is it comes back when I'm not very busy. Yeah. Because you know, the devil makes work for idle minds. I suppose in my case, and so there was so much going on that yeah, the OCD wasn't bad at all then. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Just, I'm just imagining you just looking through 500 uh, comments. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> Goodness. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people do stand up and they say, the moment I can stop doing stand up, particularly the Edinburgh Fringe and uh, festivals like that, um, the moment I can stop doing that, I will once I get those TV breaks. Did anything like that cross your mind in terms of when you were getting those TV breaks? I can now give up stand up comedy or stand up comedy? No, yeah. I, got, uh, I got more militant about stand up. So yeah. um, I, I hated, hated for years. Um, people calling me a presenter. Mm. Like, I, I go, I'm a comedian that does presenting. I'm not a presenter. Yeah. And um, and even, like, I mean, my agent at the moment saw me years ago, and they went, oh, I thought you were a presenter that was just trying to be a stand-up. <laughs> um, and I was like, rather than... They, they didn't realise it was that way round. So, like, I turned down present like lots of quite good presenting gigs because I was like no that's not that's not comedy focused enough I need to be a stand-up so yeah I you know I got asked to do like loads of stuff on this morning and I was like I'm not being on this morning because a comedian wouldn't be on this morning (laughs) and stuff like that and I think um in hindsight I should have taken the jobs but um (laughs) now I'm less but it doesn't bother me if people call me a presenter or if people even think I'm Matt Edmondson I don't care um, but that's happened. Sorry, who are you? Yeah, it happens all the time. But yeah, at that time, I was really like, I'm a comedian. And I remember Nick Helm came up to me, and I really liked Nick, and we got on really well. But he was like, I can't believe you'd take a job like uh, doing a spin off show. He goes, It's like, it's so low rent and all this. And I was like, We don't all have the same opportunities that you've had, Nick. So some of us have just got to take the work where it comes. And I, that like really kind of stuck with me and made me want to do stand up even more. Mm. Yeah. Whereas now, yeah, like, screw the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. Like, as I've gotten older, like, I'm doing it this year, but, oh, it's so long. It's just, and it's full of other comedians. <laughs> 
Did he get much jealousy on because you got that gig fairly early? And I remember I remember word going out that you got it. Did you get yeah. much jealousy from other comedians about it? No. You know what? No, actually, yeah. um, I think other comedians were really nice oh. about it. To your face? Uh, to my face. I don't know what happened behind my back. <laughs> but also, I think I'd always been quite a hard worker in cult. Like I was known for sort of gigging loads. Yeah. And sort of, you know, I was doing like 300 club gigs a year at the time. Yeah. So I think people were going, well, he's like, it works hard. I, so uh, the only other thing, it, the, the thing was, I remember being at MacFest one year, the, the, waiting to hear about it. And like, I'd gone up for it and a couple of presenters had gone up for it and Joel Domit had gone up for it. And I was speaking to someone, I was going, I'm still waiting to hear back about this presenting gig. And I think it was, was it John Kern said to me, he goes, yeah, but Joel's going to get it, isn't he? And I went, oh yeah, of course. And like Joel was kind of, you know, a tier above me as well. Mm. So I was like, well, of course Joel's going to get it because he's more experienced, he's done MTV, he's a bit better known than me. Like I was, I was really the rank outsider, the person that had never done a television gig before. Mm. So I wasn't like, you know, I don't think, I think I was as surprised as everyone else. <laughs> Okay, so um, you are a brilliant stand-up comedian. It's uh, the last time I saw you do comedy was at the Camden Comedy Club yeah. on Friday. So you were doubling up on this night. You were doing this night and then going off to close a gig. Um, yeah, the boat. I love the boat. Yeah. So um, presumably that's you know that's very normal for you doing a few gigs a night in terms of the. Uh, highs and lows coming down or you know you've said it doesn't really affect you the gigs in terms of um, highs and lows yeah. so just... like I don't you know what I don't do loads of gigs in a night like, I, like I'll double once or tw once a month maybe or something like that like I'm not I'm not militant about gigs because because I do the radio Monday to Friday yeah um I, I gig a lot in the week actually, like trying to do new material and stuff. Yeah. Whereas at the weekends, I can't necessarily do all the big clubs up and down the country because I can't get out early on a Friday and yeah. I need to do both nights. Yeah. Um. So I don't do loads of doubling up. Um. But I've been gigging a lot this year. Yeah. And I, you know, I still really I do it because I enjoy it more than anything. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I sort of pick. I can I can pick and choose the gigs I like. So I do Camden Comedy Club because yeah. I really like it. Yeah. And I do the Boats. I really like it. Whereas there's like certain gigs that. I used to do a lot because I needed the money mm. and I won't do them anymore. Yeah. For any particular reasons? Um, just like if I don't like the room, like I think there were gigs that, there, there are some gigs that people think are really great, that they rave about and you do them and you go, this was probably great 10 years ago, yeah. but now it's just okay. Like all people going, hey mate, can you come do this gig for 30 quid in Lewisham? And you go, no, I can't because yeah. that's really far from where I live. And then by the time I get there and back, it's like works out at one pound forty an hour or something. <laughs> so um, the ones I love, I'll go and do for you know, go, I'll do them for free. But um, yeah. yeah, I just I'm just quite picky now. Okay, cool. So you mentioned your girlfriend earlier. She was in the room um, on Friday. Yeah, she uh, was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I it's, talk about her on stage, bless her. Yeah. Does she often come to gigs? She'll come if I go. Oh, it's, it's quite a good lineup. Or. Mm. That night, we hadn't really seen each other properly that week because she'd mm. been working and I'd been working. So I just went, do you want to come gigging with me? Just because we had a bit of time in between the two and we, had a, we went, out, went out for a drink afterwards and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it was more like she sort of came on my work night, but it was more like we you know, turned it into a quite a nice evening together as yeah. well. So you were telling a fairly disgusting story about the two of you on yeah. stage on Friday, which obviously she's presumably heard many times. Yeah. And um, there, was a, there was a beautiful moment um, just after you tell this when some new people walk into the room. Yeah. And uh, we've, got, we've actually got this clip lined up 
um, to remind us of it, um, where you reveal to, that your girlfriend is in the audience. And indeed, to me, it was a surprise to me because I've never met your girlfriend. I thought uh, so. It was, a, it was a nice, funny moment. So let's have a listen to that now. If you want more context on this story, you sat next to her. Now. Um, <laughs> How do I recover from this? Shit. Okay. There's only one way out, isn't there? Fuck off. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Oh, my God, mate. I want, I want to make you my first wife. Fuck you. Now, um, hey, don't be offended. I want it to be my third wife as well. I'm just going to make a mistake in the middle. Now, <laughs> I like that you laughed at that because you're posh enough that your dad probably has had three wives. Now. <laughs> so there was... Um... It was a lovely moment to reveal that uh, it was a lovely personal moment that your girlfriend's there. Yeah. Um, but then I, I got a sense immediately afterwards of whether it was the audience looking at her, like, oh, yeah, who's your girlfriend, right? Maybe more interest in that. Yeah. Or maybe the kind of banter between you on stage. And then some, suddenly it was like, oh, what's going Because you'd had, you know, a great gig up to that point. And then suddenly it was like, oh, is it? I, I don't know. What did you feel at that moment was happening? Um, like, I mean, I, I don't mind revealing that she's there and I, she mm. couldn't be less bothered at all. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it, it does then, I think it changes an audience. It sort of, the problem is with stand-up is as soon as you kind of bring it into that world that you're in in the, in the moment, I suppose. Mm. So for example, like I've mentioned that my mum's in the room mm. and then that's changed the tone of a room because yeah. all of a sudden they go, oh yeah, you're a real person in these... <laughs> And you live a real life and these are all based like, like the story about my girlfriend and the tampon um, mm. is like it, there's a grain of truth there mm. and I've really pulled it out. Mm. Um, but all of a sudden they're going, oh, it's it's all a bit weird. It's the same feeling you get when people bring people that are too young to a gig to a gig <laughs> in that it makes it a bit too real. Because people want to watch stand-up and they want to go, oh, I want to, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll buy into all this. If there's a 12-year-old sat next to you, especially the kind of stuff I do, they go, oh, this is actually a bit... This is actually a bit gross. Oh. And when the person that's in the audience that the story's about him, they go, oh, this is actually a bit gross. They, they don't want to be faced with the reality <laughs> of, what is, um, of what is being said. Yeah. And in those trickier moments, or, you know, I can't imagine you ever do really badly, but, you know, uh, nowadays, but, uh, you know, we all do from time to time. How does that make you feel mentally, you know, in the moments and, uh, and after gigs when um, it goes terribly? <sighs> In the moment, you know what? Doing badly doesn't bother me. Mm. In that it's, I, I, I see it as like a puzzle almost. Mm. So like if I go on stage and something like the, what I normally open up with or what I'm opening up with doesn't get what I think it normally would, mm. in my head I'm going, all right, okay, that's interesting. So you don't like that. So let's try it this way or let's try and soften this and do this. And like, so I'm, I, I don't kind of do start and go, well, this is going to be a shit gig. I just need to get through it. Mm. I do genuinely try at every single point to readjust and re retry and get them round and get them on board mm. and afterwards um I'm, I'm really frank like i'm really honest with myself and i think like i go that wasn't good enough because of x y and z mm. and i should have done this or i didn't do this mm. i think the last time like the last time i had a gig and it didn't go well and i genuinely came off going i don't know what happened there was about a year and a half ago mm. When I did um, Robin Morgan, do you know Robin Morgan yeah. and Clint Edwards? They've got a oh. gig and they do it at Backyard Comedy Club. And it was my first gig back from Edinburgh two years ago. And normally your first gig back from Edinburgh, you're so gig fit that it goes super well. Yeah. And I absolutely died, like properly died. 
And I didn't, and to this day, I don't know why I died. <laughs> Everyone else had had a really lovely gig. They were a lovely audience and I bombed. And normally I go, okay, I bombed because I did this wrong or actually I made them, I made myself unlikable to them really early doors by doing this. And that's why it didn't work later on because you've got to be likable to get the trust for that bit. Yeah. And that's the last gig. And like, it doesn't keep me up at night, but every so often I'll just go, I wonder why. Oh. And I just can't work it out with that one. Whereas normally I can sit down and work out what I did wrong. Oh. It sounds like these things don't affect you very much, maybe as much as other comedians. Is that how you feel about that? Yeah, I do. I, I think I do feel about that. Like, I think mm. the highs don't affect me and the lows don't affect me. Mm. I think I'm quite, I'm quite balanced when it comes to comedy. Yeah. Like if I, do you if, put that down to anything in terms of... Um, I, think, I think I've got quite a thick skin. Mm. But also I think with the highs... Um, I've been promised the world so many times in my career mm. and it's never paid off to the point that it's been promised mm. that I'm just like, I remember when I, when I did my first tour, when I was doing Extra Factor, um, I, they were going, look, we're going to book, we're going to start, we're going to do this first leg in these kind of like little tiny hundred seaters. And if that goes well, we're going to move you up to the next size room. And we moved up to the next size room and that, and then they were like, we'll do that. And then the next step is like theatres. Mm. And I was like, all right, brilliant. And they were going, this tour is going to end at the O2. I guarantee it. Blah, blah, blah. All these people saying this kind of stuff. And then we did the 100 seaters and that went really well. And then we went up to the 400 seaters and that was a huge mistake. <laughs> and I was still selling like about 100, 150 tickets, but in massive rooms. Mm. So um, I've been, and that was the first time I'd gone, okay, cool. So maybe it's not as sweet as it's meant as everyone says it is. And it's happened to me dozens of times now that people go, this is going to happen and we're going to do this and that. So right. I'm not affected by the highs because I always go, yeah, but this won't last. This kind of high doesn't last. And it, mm. the reality of it is that it, it doesn't matter. And I think I feel the same with the lows. Yeah. So I, I just go, okay, well, I don't believe that. So I can't believe the worst of it as well. Yeah. So when those opportunities don't, come off does that make you feel frustrated are you no not at all yeah. I think um you know there's things that you go well that's a shame because I think I'd have been good on that or I could be good doing that yeah um but the, I don't I don't ever blame you know anything I don't ever go well I'm really like why isn't this happening I'm really shit like it, it's yeah. frustrating sometimes but it is what it is isn't it and like mm. also I am very aware that I have done things that like I other comedians would kill to do mm. so you start to moan about things. I remember once moaning about, to a comedian friend of mine who out of respect, I won't name, mm. um, I was moaning about, I did never mind the Buzzcocks and, and it was really hard, the record. And um, uh, you know, it was, it was all a bit weird and there was a pop star and he wasn't very nice. And it was, yeah, the whole, and I, I remember moaning to him about it and he was just like, mate, I've just done a gig for 40 quid. Can you <laughs> never moan to me about never mind the Buzzcocks again? And I was like, that, yeah, actually, like, fair enough. Like, that is a dick move. <laughs> so I think I can't, you know, everything that's come is is brilliant. All mm. I wanted to do when I started doing stand-up is see if I could do five minutes. Yeah. And I didn't think it'd ever be my job, and I didn't think all the other stuff would happen. Yeah. So I just try and remind myself of that whenever I get, like, a bit glum about anything. Yeah. You can moan to me about things. Unless, yeah, also, unless, you're, unless you're presenting bullseye, I don't give a shit. <laughs> but also, like, you know, it's not a real thing, is it, stand-up? Like, we, it, we, it's a big deal for us because we're in it. Mm. But like, it no one cares. Like, <laughs> like my friends who have real proper jobs, like they don't care if I'm getting booked for eight out of ten cats or not. Yeah. Because like, one, you know, it's like some of them are like doctors. <laughs> mm. So, 
<laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, like my mum, like my mum works as a as a child uh, a child behavioural officer in a really deprived area. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, mum, oh, like mock the week came again, and they said that I'm not quite right, but I had a really good gig. I'm like, how was your day? And she's like, well, I'm trying to get a seven year old put into care because she's being abused. And you're like, <laughs> okay, cool, right? That's put enough perspective into my life that I should stop moaning about this. Yeah, indeed. A heart surgeon said to me a couple of months ago, he said, "You're so brave doing stand up." I'm like, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, but you know what it is? It's the public speaking thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing. Like, once you get past that, stand up isn't that bad. It's that people don't like public speaking. If people weren't afraid of public speaking, there'd yeah. be a lot of very good comedians out there <laughs> that aren't around now. Thank God they're scared of it. Yeah. So it sounds like nothing too much affects you. Um, how about hecklers? Because I, the, the previous gig I, 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 I'd seen you at i don't really remember this it was for a nice and spiky comedy a brilliant uh, set of gigs run by um, a lovely promoter friend of mine clara um and this one was in i don't even remember this one it was in king's cross i was hosting oh, yeah and you had a lovely gig and then <laughs> at the end of the gig you did i think a routine about dogs yeah so basically I was, it was a brand new bit actually i was yeah. trying out a bit about um a restaurant where all the waiting staff are blind indeed and the joke was I didn't want to eat there because I think it'd be unhygienic because it'd be full of dogs because they'd have guide dogs. <laughs> which, that was the, that was which I think is a really silly joke. Yeah. About being like I don't know, there's going to have there's going to be guide dogs. Of course there's not going to be guide dogs in the restaurant. Yeah. Um and a woman at the back who I think she was I mean she was quite drunk I would say. Yeah. Um she really took offense to this <laughs> about me mocking because I also went, I think they said, I was like, look, I don't think that's an offensive joke, but if you're blind and you're offended, um, and then I just flick the Vs, obviously, you know, the joke they're being, they can't see that I'm like being offensive to them again. <laughs> Which, once again, I think is quite silly. Yeah. Um, and she took, she really took umbrage with me. Yeah. And, and like, rather, and it wasn't really like, and it wasn't like heckling, really. We like had an argument about it. Yeah, while you were on stage. While I was on stage, like this, it sort of stopped the gig. Yeah, because um, I don't mind hecklers at all, really, mm. and I really like chatting to audiences. And um, but she kind of like she, you know, she was really mad, and then started to like really have a go at me. And I, I sort of stuck up for my. I mean, it's it really. I, I left at the end of it because it kind of broke the whole stand-up wheel really yeah. didn't it i don't know how the gig was after that but she left didn't she she left so yeah it was yeah it was a brilliant mc that got it back on track yeah yeah absolutely that's what i've heard and um but yeah it was weird i saw your face as you left in that moment were you feeling kind of terrible you yeah. no not no, at all yeah you're fine nothing I, affects you does well, it well you know what i was annoyed but i wasn't annoyed about oh. i didn't feel terrible because i i still stood by that i wasn't being oh. She, her problem was, she was like, how dare you say that? You can't say that and all that. And I was going, but I can. And like, this is a comedy club and like, I'm trying stuff, like I was trying stuff out. And yeah. so like, I kind of stood, the only, re the only reason I'd feel if I left feeling bad, and I've done this at gigs before, is when I've overstepped the mark. Yeah. So I've said things to audience members before that I think are like, say, I've gone one too far. You know, when you kind of accidentally go go a bit too far or you've got, yeah. and you have genuinely upset someone or you've genuinely said something quite nasty and offensive, yeah. which I've done, especially dealing with people who are drunk and talking and things like that. Yeah. Then I leave a gig and that will bother me for days. Yeah. Like if I feel like I've, I've said something out of order, but I don't think I was out of order in that situation. Yeah. So that's why I left and I felt okay. Yeah. And I went and did another gig. Um, and I was a bit like, I walked on stage there and I was like, I've just had a really weird <laughs> experience where I've had an argument with a woman. 
And I think because I was so sure of my footing there, oh. that's why it didn't bother me too much. Yeah. Whereas if I went, if I then thought, no, actually, I I was in the wrong there, but she instigated it, and like, I, and she, and the thing that she did that really fucked me off though is she called me little boy. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah. yeah, she kept being like, "Oh, shut up, little boy," and I'm like, right. like, "Like, I'm like, I'm not one. I'm not a little boy. Like, that's mm. obvious. I'm just younger than you." And I kind of was going back, going, "Yeah, I'm a little boy, but like, I mean, you're a woman in your fifties, drunk on a Tuesday <laughs> at a comedy night, and you can barely talk." I was like, "Maybe you should be looking at yourself in your age rather than me and mine." So, is there anything uh, that annoys you? Anything that gets to you? you? Did it? You did a show in 2017, I think, called called Slash about uh, stories about you and Harry Styles uh, online, kind of weird, yeah. kind of erotic fiction and Slash, uh, and that was obviously you were making making you know light of some of the some of the things that are written of you yeah. online. Is there anything that comes out? Anything that's kind of unnerving? Any kind of particularly when you were uh, I say when you were famous when you were famous when you were famous at the peak of my the peak of my the peak of my public awareness. Is there is. Uh, is there a darker side apart from apart from uh, what's on Twitter? I mean, that's dark enough. I think, in itself, like, I think uh, reviews are obviously always quite hard work. Mm. Um, but how about you know just walking down the street or you know actually? No, nothing like know. that really. Because people yeah. people don't want to be horrible to your face. Well, it's great. It's great that it seems like nothing nothing really is affecting you. No, it's, I mean, I, like, I think great. like I think I'm terrible at stand up sometimes, and I don't think I'm good enough. At, like all of us, at, at times. But it doesn't but, get you down too much. It's like no. You know, it's, when they, when those things happen, which is no, it's not. It's yeah, it's good. I'm quite, yeah. I'm quite level about it because you've got to take both the bad and the good with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Well, that's my job as psychoanalyzing you over because you're just, you're absolutely fine, aren't you? <laughs> it's all the hypnotherapy. You're amazing. Um, and I think we're nearing the end of our time. You're, you're not angry about anything. You're not even going to be angry when I. Reveal that you're at Matt Richardson three on Twitter. Yeah, and at can... Matt Richardson one and two are fake accounts. I bet you're not even angry about that, are you? <laughs> no, you know what? I, like, no, but it's because it's so stupid. I'm not even the only. Like, there's another Matt Richardson on Twitter yeah. who's verified. Like, yeah. there's loads of us. Like the the guy who has at Matt Richardson, we follow each other, and he just tweets me sometimes, going, "Hey man, um, I'm getting loads of tweets. Have you done something <laughs> to offend some people?" Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> He's getting all your abuse now. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt. That was um, such fun. Thank you very much. Thanks. Best psychoanalysis I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, you're just fine. <laughs> That's my degree, remember? That's why I got a first. Everybody's fine. Thank you. So that is our show for today. But join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us. And only psychopaths leave one-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, Bachelor of Science, First Class Honours in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English, for Pub People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, at Matt Edmondson. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't even bother me, but it really bothers him. <laughs> at Matt Richardson 3. Follow at Matt Richardson as well. He's verified. And um, see you again next week. Lots of love to you. Ball.